This episode is proudly sponsored by ShakeBay, Canada's easiest way to buy and earn Bitcoin in 10 minutes or less with no deposit or withdrawal fees. It's so easy, even the boomer can do it. Guys, I've personally been using ShakePay for several years and highly recommend them. Their mobile app makes it super easy to buy and sell Bitcoin. All you have to do is e-transfer directly to your ShakePay account and you're ready to go. So head over to shakepay.com or download the mobile app, use the referral code LOONYHOUR and get $30 of free Bitcoin when you sign up. ShakePay gives out free Bitcoin to every user every day just by shaking your phone. They call this the shaking sats feature. It's awesome. I highly encourage you to go check it out. ShakePay has also just launched one of Canada's only Bitcoin cashback prepaid credit cards, which gives users up to 2% Bitcoin cashback on every transaction. If you want to opt out, Canadian dollars and start earning rewards through Bitcoin, go check out ShakePay. Once again, guys, that's shakepay.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 46. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. And of course, everyone's favorite boomer, Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management. What's going on, gentlemen? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I got lots of positive feedback on my Thomas Solwell shirt. And so today I'm wearing my other favorite economist hero, John Maynard Keynes which will make all the Solwell pumpers uh, very sad. <laughs> the, one, um, the one guy. On the one guy. And on this shirt, which you can you know, buy my website, free plug, it says, uh, in the long run, we are all dead. Uh, John Maynard Keynes is one of my personal heroes, much to Keith's disappointment and all the, the rest of the people in the comment section. Um, he was brilliant. He's got lots of really good things to say. And I have a quote for him. And he said, in the long run, we're all dead. Economists set themselves too easy and too useless a task. If temptuous seasons, they can only tell us that when the storm has passed, the ocean will be flat again. And so uh, the reason that's so important to me is when we were talking about this transitory inflation BS that, you know, in the long run, I guess everything is transitory and in the long run, we're all dead. So there you go. That's my, that's my, that's my Boom. new pickup line, my, new pickup line. <laughs> How's the ranch? What is, what is the pickup line exactly? In the long run, we're all dead. <laughs> May as well make a night of it. That's a great pickup line of the Montreal bars. Well, I, I really like John Maynard Keynes and I'm wearing his shirt and you know, it's, you know, I'm, one week it's uh one guy and next week's another guy. There you go. How are you doing, Keith? You're scaring I'm Keith. Good. Yeah, I'm doing great. And uh, I'm rocking my old Navy, respect the locals, California themed t-shirt. <laughs> Four ninety five on the old Navy website. Yeah, you know, that's the ultimate boomer store, eh? Old Navy. <laughs> the, you gonna go uh, foraging for mushrooms? No. <laughs> My my seventy year old stepdad shops at Old Navy. 
Actually, I just read a great story. This this guy used to play football uh, at the University of Arizona and then the Cardinals and the Broncos. This guy, uh, Jake Plummer. So uh, he's a great story out now on, on The Athletic about mushrooms and, and stuff. But Richard talking about, you know, uh, you know, canes and, you know, in the end, we're all dead. Here's my version of it. 60 kilometers, I was almost dead. So last weekend, we started, like, I wake up and Mrs. Icecap says, come on, we're going for a bike ride. And um, so in Nova Scotia, if you're not aware, everyone, we, we have a really nice bike system on the old railway trail. So you can, you know, ride along by the ocean and the sea and beaches and stuff. Anyway, so we, we go on our, on, our, on our bike ride. And I thought it was, you know, I'm pretty good with 25 kilometers. And then I'm shutting it down. All of a sudden, Mrs. Icecap informs me we're going 60 kilometers, which is about 35 more than my, you know, my my comfortable point so um she ended up getting home about 30 45 minutes before i did i ended up driving she left you home. of course she did <laughs> slowing her down Jesus. good for her <laughs> i get back i get hydrated and i sit down for 10 minutes you know for a, a little nap and it turns into a three-hour nap apparently but that was uh yeah you guys almost lost ice cap strolling around in a wheelchair the next day <laughs> yeah, it was pretty slow. It was pretty slow. Um, What's man. happening with the? Well, uh, what are you saying, Steve? Well, so I was just gonna say, speaking of slow, uh, you know, we've got some uh, Canadian Canadian bank earnings. Uh, obviously, we've talked about it quite a bit on the show. Here is uh, you know the, these guys were gonna start ramping up loan loss provisions as the economy slows down, housing continues to weaken, which we've obviously talked about many, many times in this show. So we've kind of been anticipating uh, you know the bank's quarterly earnings here. Uh, Keith's got some some updates on that. Keith would love your thoughts. I think we've got so far we've had I think Scotia was first out of the gates. Uh, RBC and TD, I believe have now all reported. so, um, any sort of commentary there looking at, uh, you know, some of the, some of the numbers coming out. Yeah, I know. I think, you know, we've been, um, sort of leading into this week now for a while. And, uh, so this is, this is our view. I mean, we've been warning everyone that if the global economy is slowing, it's likely the Canadian economy was slow at the same time, the housing market was coming off. So therefore it's highly likely the Canadian banks would have to provision more losses for the loan portfolios. So loan loss provision, that's what we used to call them. I think they have a slightly different term on them now. Um, and RBC was the one we were always highlighting because last quarter, instead of increasing losses for the loan portfolios, uh, what RBC did, it was, it was pretty, no, it's just sneaky, right? They, they actually put in a negative number. So they said what they anticipated would be losses on the loan portfolios they said no they're no longer be losses people are going to actually pay them back and the amount that will get back will be will dwarf what potential losses you might get in new loans coming in um, so it's not very often banks do that but when they rbc did it they you know it's just me talking but it it implied they're doing it so they can have a really good earnings number which they did but then it also allowed you know, guys like us to say, hey, wait till next quarter because it's going to be stacked against you. So, uh, you know, RBC came out and they really had to ramp up their provisioning of the loan portfolios. Um, and, and the way the banks do these things with their press release, they try to you know, deflect attention away 
from something that's bad. So RBC was talking about, you know, the, they lost money in the capital markets. So that's why things were soft. Not a lot of attention on the loan portfolios, but it, it was soft, guys. It was really soft. So then what you want to do is say, hey, is this getting carried over into other banks? Because it's, it's, it's extremely unlikely a single Canadian bank is going to have problems with their loan portfolio because they're all lending to the same markets, uh, both from a geographic perspective and industries and, and so forth. Uh, Scotiabank came out the day before RBC. And again, they had very weak uh, loan portfolios. They had to increase the provisioning for that as well. But what they do, they try to deflect attention. They basically uh, say, hey, you know what? Our international uh, international markets you know, performed very poorly for us. And they did that. And then I think, you know, we had TD out yesterday, National Bank was also out. And again, they always try to come up with a headline and say, hey, you know, things are really good here. But right now, on an aggregate basis, Canadian banks, they are starting to really increase potential losses coming up on their loan portfolios. And the way that we look at it right now, it's they're, they're positioning for what you would call a soft landing. So if we do get a soft landing, and you know who cares how it's manufactured or anything, if it's by a decree or by the by accident, um, then you know that the banks will be fine here. And like I know, I know a lot of people on social media or you know trying to wave the flag on the banks say, hey, it's over for them. Just to be clear, Canadian banks are very well capitalized. They are not in danger of falling under. You don't need to go to yank your money out or anything. As of right now, like this is just turning into a bit of a cyclical downturn. It could always accelerate, but as of, you know, this week, and it's it's Thursday, by the way. So, you know, Friday, you're listening to this is, and Powell Bingo. has already spoken. Bingo. But uh, that's the, th that's the news with RBC and the Canadian bank's earnings. It, it's progressing exactly the way that we thought it would. And if you're wondering how we think it will go from here, um, cover your ears, Rich. Got it. Got it. Good. Uh, I think it'll deteriorate a little bit further from here. So I, I don't think we're swinging upward at this point. And that's I, it, guys. Well, I can, chime, I, can chime, I can chime in here. Um, what are you saying? Just on the mortgage side of things, um, just looking through some some more numbers here. But yeah, it's important distinction, Keith. I think like I get a lot of these DMs and emails and stuff, and you know people that are concerned and you know because you know we talk sometimes about you know negative housing markets and people go, oh my gosh, like there's just going to be this huge collapse in Canadian housing and the banks are going to get destroyed and should I pull my money out? What should I do with it? Should I be running to cash, withdrawing it all? So it's like. Everyone just needs to relax. The, the the big five are fine. They run the country. Um, but yeah, like they're they're you know they're their their stocks probably gonna get you know hit a bit and and you know there's gonna be some losses and and housing continues to remain under pressure. Uh, and and one of those is actually from so from RBC on the day right. So the big thing that we've been talking about here is you know moving forward, increasing loan loss provisions, uh, weaker housing market is that moving forward here, we do have a problem with these trigger rates. And so uh, we had some really good data here from my good friend, uh, Ben Rabideau, uh, who runs a research service uh, in Canada, where basically per his own metrics, so he says nearly 15% of total outstanding variable rate mortgages were originated between March, 2021 and February of 22. 
at an average rate of 1.58%. So this obviously, you know, at 1.58%, when the Bank of Canada raises rates 50 or 75 basis points uh, in September 7th here in a couple of weeks, those, a lot of those mortgages will in fact actually get triggered. So they'll, they'll basically be almost negative amortizing. And so they'll have to most likely increase their payments. Now, uh, we had some information out from RBC uh, post their, their announcement there on their earnings. Uh, so RBC says their upcoming rate hikes may trigger higher monthly payments for about 80,000 customers with variable rate mortgages. Uh, the increases will average give or take, they say about $200. So maybe not the end of the world, but I mean, in terms of disposable income, right? If you just take an extra $200 per month from your you know, average household in Canada and start applying that towards debt servicing costs, then you factor in you know, the cost of food that's been going up and fuel and, and whatnot. I mean, there's just a lot less disposable income to go around. And so I think, I mean, wretched love your thoughts, but to me, that just screams of more slowing. Well, you made a really good point, uh, which is it's, it's not just that the interest component on the debt that they owe is going up, but everything, as we know, as we've talked about ad nauseum with inflation going higher is going up. And it's not clear at all that wages are anywhere near, or excuse me, wage growth is anywhere near as high as in the U.S., Wage growth in the U.S., depending on what cohort you are, what age, what race, can be between six, seven, eight, nine percent. Um, in Canada, it's it's not that at all. And we'll skip why this week. We'll talk about it some other week. But I think it's just so so you know that your your real wages are negative in Canada, where they might be positive in the United States. So that's the first thing. The only thing, uh, as far as the 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 macro stuff on the banks. I look at things, something, something called the senior loan officer survey. Uh, you've got it for US, UK, you've got it for Euro area. And the senior loan officer survey is exactly what it says on the tin. And it is a, basically a survey that they do quarterly. And they ask you, are you tightening conditions or easing conditions? Um, you know, are you getting more demand or less demand? They ask uh, about mortgage lending, non-financial corporate lending, consumer growth. And it's actually quite balanced, which is surprising. You could say, Rich, well, it's because it's lagging. But right now, it's it's sort of right in the middle. So, you know, maybe that's exactly what it is. It's a lagging indicator, and we got to keep an eye on it going forward. I have a suspicion that these banks, while they're increasing their provisions, are probably looking ahead and probably tightening lending conditions a lot more than so maybe they're saying on their surveys. So we'll see. Um, and the other thing I look at is just year on year, um, year on year lending growth for households. You've got mortgage, mortgages and credit. So mortgage lending is 9.6%. That's starting to roll over. And then consumer credit, which is interesting, unlike in the US where it's been absolutely ripping, I think it's all over 10% consumer credit. So that includes like non-revolving loans. So credit lines and revolving loans like credit cards. Canada, it's actually been quite slow. Uh, it's only 3% year on year, which is amazing for consumer credit lending. And so that's finally starting to go up while mortgage lending is going down. So that's that. And then non-financial corporate lending has been relatively strong, 9% year on year. So I guess what we're saying is without that credit card going forward, it's going to be tough for the economy to sustain the pace that we've been at 
and that, that, that's that's my that's my bit on on that part of the economy I, yeah no that's that's fantastic i'd love to sort of add in i think like it's always important to contextualize and i think keith you might have some additional thoughts on this as well but like the i think the differences between the canadian consumer and the u.s consumer are much different shapes uh especially you, look, you know if you like strictly look at household debt to gdp balances you have to remember that the Canadian household did not delever uh, in the in the global financial crisis, so we definitely have a lot more elevated levels of debt, similar to Australia. Um, but also, just to quickly chime in again, on, quickly on the mortgage side, so we don't have perfect numbers. Um, so Ben Rabideau, who I think I have a ton of respect for, he's he's of the camp. His numbers suggest that of the all variable rate mortgages that are outstanding, he believes that 80% of them are in, in, in these fixed payment uh, programs, which means that they, a lot of them will ultimately be triggered. Um, National Bank came out recently and, and their numbers are 67%. So for all intents and purposes, let's just say 70% of all variable mortgages in Canada have what's called a fixed payment, which means again, the payment does not change, but when interest rates go up as much as they're going up, at some point they become negative amortizing and you'll have to reset your payments. Um, so for those though that are not, let's say you're at the 30% and you're on a floating rate. So let's say your mortgage is through Scotia Bank. Um, I've been getting a lot of anecdotes from, from uh, you know, friends and whatnot that uh, that are on, you know, on these Scotia loans and they are already seeing like 225 basis points increase so far this year on their, on their mortgage. And that's increasing their monthly payments significantly, especially in these highly levered markets like Vancouver and Toronto. So for example, if you have a million dollar mortgage on a floating variable rate, uh, your monthly payment is up year to date. Your monthly payment would be up $1,240. Um, Jesus, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Assuming you did a 30 year amortization, and you borrowed a million bucks um, and you floated it, you're up just over 1200 bucks. And so I know people go, oh, well, you know, million dollar mortgage, what an idiot, who the hell would do that? All I can tell you is like, look at the benchmark prices in Vancouver and Toronto and, and some of these other expensive cities. I mean, Keith, where Keith is in Halifax, it's not cheap. If you're a young family and you've got kids, you're probably trying to get a three bedroom home and the cost of a three bedroom home is north of a million bucks in, in any of those cities. So, you know, if you're talking one, three, one, four, one, five purchase price, you know, let's say you put down three, $400,000, it's, it's not uncommon again, to have a million dollar mortgage. And when you run those numbers, when you run a million dollar mortgage and you put in the mortgage calculator, you know, 2% mortgage rate, which is, which was standard over the last 18 months, your monthly carry is only like 3,800 bucks a month. It's not that big when you start to add obviously 225 basis points that now you're in a whole, whole different world. So these are kind of things that I'm watching moving forward. It's still really early, I think from a default perspective, but if you're looking for sort of bank foreclosures, financial stress, um, I think that's probably a mid to late 2023 story. So, so can, can I just add like a, a small anecdote, which is like, I think, some people for, you know, when people criticize individuals for taking these variable rate loans or whatever it is, I think a lot of people were sort of forced into it, right, uh, Steve, when when they started to raise rates, the stress test changed. And in order to get sort of a higher 
loan relative to deposit, wasn't it better that they opted for the variable rate? Yeah. So if you wanted to like qualify basically for right. the home that you wanted to purchase, um, yeah. Like I know a guy rate- in Nova Scotia who, you know, modest house, modest income, but once the rates started rising, they were basically told, listen, the only way you'll be able to afford this house is if you do a variable rate mortgage. Yeah. And we're not talking a million bucks here. There's still people going bucks. that way. So if you look at the data um, in May, uh, that's the latest sort of numbers that we have for, for May. So 51% of new originations in the month of May were variable originations. Um, and that's just a lot of people obviously trying to get out trying and to get, catch up. Yeah. But right. So 51% in May, I mean, when, when was that hundred basis point hike we had July? I think I from the so. BOC. So we remember. already, you know, we've already had that. Uh, it reminds me of that. Uh, what's it? The big short. These people just want homes. Um, it's a so, gully. It's a gully. Yeah. It's just a gully. But yeah, everybody, I, I think like there's a reason why we do this show. Obviously we're trying to reach a broader audience and we're trying to help Canadians and, and, you know, highlight risks and obviously make it funny and educational at the same time. But like, I can genuinely say <clears throat> that the vast, vast majority of Canadians don't really know <clears throat> what's happening with interest rates. They don't really know who Tiff Macklem is. They don't necessarily understand variable rates, trigger rates, fixed payment variables. Like they go to the bank, they walk into the branch and they say, how much can I, how much house can I buy? And what's the payment? That's the bulk of the conversation. So when we get hit with these kind of shocks, the first thing that goes is the discretionary spending um, and, and you right. do everything, you scrap and claw to pay that mortgage. Um, so that's all I can say. So let's pretend, uh, let's continue on this train of thought, but let's pretend now that I am a bank. I'm one of the big six banks. Big, You're a bad five man. And half, five and a half. I'm a very, very bad man. You should keep charging fees at the ATM. That'd be great. <laughs> I love FX. I'm making so much money off you clowns on FX. Just keep doing it all day long, especially when you charge on your credit card because I'm getting anyway, but let's go back to, uh, so this whole environment scenario we're talking about. So I'm a big bank and I'm sitting here. I already lent out all this money for the people to buy these, these beautiful homes. And uh, now all of a sudden I can see the economy is slowing. The housing markets come off a little bit. And uh, rates are going up, so it's making it more difficult. So as a bank right now, my risk is, well, we do go into one of these darker moments coming up. And, um, you know, we all talk about, like, no one likes to lose money, but banks really don't want to lose money. That's not what they're in the business of doing. And uh, they're exceptionally good at that, especially when the wind is in their back. So if I'm a bank right now, uh, I'm looking at this. And as you mentioned earlier, Rich, first thing I'm going to do is, you know what? I think the probability of the economy slowing down a lot more than people thought is a lot higher than people were thinking. So I'm going to stop lending as much as I did before. And that will trickle down through in so many different ways. Uh, The next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to start charging more for the loans, make it put up more strict conditions to get it. 
and you know have all that but that's all on the demand side that's, so that's what you're seeing steve and you know rich that's what you see in your chat with your friends as well remember i'm the bank i'm looking behind the scenes here and i have to worry about my earnings number that's going to come out so i really have to worry about what is my what am i going to expense for these loan portfolios because that's what we talked about at the beginning of the show so i'm looking at here now on one of my screens um it's one of the big banks i'm not going to tell you which one because people might imply i'm saying to do this or that with it. Uh, but I'm looking at the dollar amount that they're provisioning for credit losses. So it's the annualized amount. So it's, it's a number, a big number. And um, so for example, the, the number from for this bank in 2014 up to 2019, it increased every year because they're lending more and more money every year as, as you would. But uh, the number is up to about you know 3 billion, what, like on a, at the max. And then the pandemic hit and that number, all of a sudden they provisioned more than twice that, seven and a quarter billion, right? That's what they had to do. You know, the world is gonna end, no one's gonna pay me back. In 21, they had a negative number. So they were actually, you know, they didn't have to do as much as before. But the estimate for this year, for 2022, is it's about one third to one half of what was provisioned for the years 2019 back to 2014. So you're following me? Yeah, that's so good. even though they've lent out more money, the amount- A lot that more the, money. Yeah, a lot, a more, lot money. more money. Now, now granted, a, a big chunk that they provisioned in 2020 is still caught up in, in the financial statement. So that's positive for it. But as a bank, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know what? I might have to provision even more coming up that I just did this quarter. So again, the suggestion here is everything is tied together. And uh, hey, if you're an optimist and you, you think, hey, no, the world is, is gonna recover nicely, globalization's coming back online, oil is gonna fall in price and you know, Rich, Rich gets to, to go on with his policies that he wants to use for climate change and everything, then yeah, you know, this, this, you're not gonna have to worry, the economy's gonna be fine. But as we go down this road here, again, as a bank, you know, I'm. You know, I'm, I'm having some pretty serious meetings right now with, with the risk side to make sure that we don't fall behind. So that's that's the last comment sort of on the, uh, the, can I the touch on stuff. Can I just add something that some people might be interested in knowing? So what you've described is sort of a pro-cyclical, you know, idea. You know, often we say banks are, there's some things that are counter-cyclical. And often you can say that banks and bank lending are often pro-cyclical. And what that means is that it sort of just like encourages the current cycle. And so it's, it's like a, it can be a virtuous circle. So when banks lend more, people have more liquidity, then they, they have more easier access to credit, then they bid up the prices of homes. And then banks see that the assets are rising and then banks are confident and then they allow more money to flow out to the homeowners and mortgage rates, excuse me, mortgages and mortgage lending and the house prices go up even higher and the banks are even more confident because the assets that they're collateralized the loan against um, is going higher. Uh, but the opposite is true. You can get a vicious circle. So you can, and what that's what Keith is sort of describing where you have banks are now worried about what's happening with the asset values. They're restricting the loans, which is restricting the turnover and the churn in the market. Um, and that sort of, and that sort of, again, that's pro cyclical. So you can have the vicious circle or a virtuous circle. And so that's, you know, that's one of the risks that's going on right now, which is that the banks will continue to, um, restrict loans and lending, which will hurt, um, you know, which will hurt obviously 
um, uh, house prices, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, sorry. I just thought that was something that might, people might be interested in. Yeah, knowing. I think that's, I mean, that's brilliant. Cause I've, I've always, you know, try to mention that to people. It's like the, the funny thing is all you have to do is think about it as like, how come back in, you know, January, February in the housing market, when valuations were utterly obscene, where like people were just creating new all-time highs every single day, you know, 10 offers on a house, $300,000 over the asking price sells, you know, several hundred thousands of dollars higher than the, the neighbor that just sold two weeks ago. And yet the appraisal value always came in. There was never a question of like, Hmm, maybe this guy overpaid the appraisal almost always came in. And now of course we're hearing the stories of, Oh yeah. Yeah. You negotiated $50,000 off the asking price, but you know, the appraisal still came in a little bit light. So that's kind of the, the pro cyclicality that, that Rich is talking about. It's, it's, it's banks basically create the boom. And I, I think ultimately they're, they're certainly re- partially responsible for creating, you know, the downturn or the bust, so to speak. So, so that brings me to a question then. So then, you know, when you're hearing people talk about with that in mind, when we're hearing people talking about, you know, that the, the central bank of Canada might be over as far as raising rates in September, does that something that crosses your mind? Do you guys, I know, do we care about that? Is it something we should talk about? Forgive me if well, it isn't. Yeah. Keith, you flagged that. I mean, so CIBC, uh, their, their strategist, I guess is calling for sort of one, one more and done in September, which was, which was my call. I don't know, a couple of weeks ago on the pod, but um, I don't know if you've got a, any sort of commentary on that, Keith. Yeah. Uh, so I know a few weeks back, I suggested they would either do 50 or 75, and then the probability of them stopping was quite high. And also said that would be based upon, you know, something bad happening. So I, I do believe we're increasingly getting to that period. Uh, however, as of, as of right now today, the market is still expecting the Bank of Canada to be at 375 by year end. So we're at 250 right now. So long way to go there. They, they ain't stopping there in, in a couple of weeks. Um, again, we'll, we'll see where we, where we go with it. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, I saw the headline for the CIBC, the strategist uh, estimate a, a strategist. He's not, his number is not going into the market. It's not influencing the market. It's just a thought piece that that's being written. It's funny so, that the media picks that up though. And says like, this is the, this is the call like CIBC says this and it's like he's kind of the lone wolf at this point um well, that's a lot more the housing market to roll over <laughs> the loony yeah, hour but the, isn't but guys, no, the if, media is not picking up the loony hours comments here well i think there's a good reason that's for not that. true we're gonna start exporting natural gas <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah. keith go ahead uh, well again if you're the media you know you always need you know a a headline grabber so i think that's a lot more but face it, guys, if you're in the media business of talk about interest rates all the time, and it's a bit of a snoozer, really, right? Unless you're on our side of the fence. But hey, yeah, but Canada did. So Trudeau ventured to the west coast of Newfoundland, the town of Stephenville, which I've hung out in a few times over the years. Um, but I, I thought it was just so many things about it. I just said, this is just very odd. So it wasn't that gas they were promoting. Wasn't it wind? Hydrogen. 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 hydrogen and where's the hydrogen coming from they want to manufacture it hydrogen is a very very popular element it's i think it's one on the atomic on the periodic table right 
fun things with rich take it away <laughs> um and you can use it obviously to power vehicles but that's not the headline the takeaway is that uh, chancellor olaf schultz basically came to canada cap in hand begging the canadians to build lng terminals on the east coast of canada to provide an alternative to russia um, remember germany imports something like 60 percent of its natural gas from russia thanks to angela merkel and her infinite wisdom and chancellor olaf basically came and said can we please, please um, build some LNG terminals? Canada doesn't have any LNG terminals. We export all of our natural gas to the US via pipeline. Uh, Canada is the fifth largest producer of natural gas in the world and has the 15th largest reserves. And the quote, which may change day to day, it changes, but the recent quote is that JT um, dismissed it and said that there's no business case for basically allowing the regulation to soften with respect to building natural gas terminals. Um, that's a bunch of baloney. Um, as, as I've been well documented on this program, Canada, if it's interested in lowering global emissions, should be exporting as much natural gas as possible. Um, it has the added benefit of helping one of our allies and NATO members um, diversify its natural gas imports away from Russia. So um, we'll see. Stay tuned. So one thing with that announcement, you know, uh, the, the, the German guy Schlotz, he said, the German coast cannot keep up with the same wind conditions found in Newfoundland, <laughs> making the province an ideal location for hydrogen production. Um, so yeah, it's friggin' windy in Newfoundland all the time. <laughs> if you ever been over there, I remember as a kid, I used to play tennis and, um, you know, you wake up in the morning and it's just pouring rain or snowing. Like, you know, can't play tennis today. Wake up the next morning, you know, it's a bluebird sky and you, you go outside and, you know, 80 kilometer an hour winds blowing through, uh, you know, the weather is horrible over there, you know, so maybe, yeah, they do have the wind, but I, Explain to me how that's going to, it's, it's not being captured right now, certainly not on mass scale. So Rich, how do they do that from Newfoundland to get it to Germany? So what they want to use is they want to use wind energy to create hydrogen resource, basically. So hydrogen, in order to create some kind of liquefied or usable hydrogen, I'm not exactly sure on the science, but in order to create that, it takes a lot of energy. So you can use hydroelectric dams, you can use coal if you really wanted to, but they want to use wind. And when you store energy in a molecule, such as gasoline, um, you can store it for a very, very, very long time, right? Which is much different than, um, and, and so what they want to do is they want to use wind energy to store energy in a molecule, such as hydrogen, and then transfer that hydrogen into using it in fleet vehicles. Mostly it's fleet. I don't know why they, it's always fleet. Whatever you read about it, it's always fleet. Um, and that's, and you know, but, and that's, that's all well and good. And maybe in 50 years from now, that might be the answer, but right now there's a pressing need. Um, also remember that um, off the coast of Newfoundland, there's actually lots of oil resources. Um, Canada has the third largest oil <laughs> reserves in the world most of it is in in alberta in the oil sands but a whole whack of it is in where keith used to play tennis with a double backhand i imagine 
and two handed, two handed, two handed backhand. Very important to note. And 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 the reality is, it's just a purely political decision. Canada, um, Canada is a massively resource rich country, and the reason we don't have the plants, the LNG facilities, the pipelines is not because there's no business case. It is purely, purely a regulatory. Um, burden that is put upon companies to make it impossible for them to execute on a plan. A friend of mine is works in a private equity fund in in the UK and has been trying to basically do this for a long time. They wanted to build the hydro plant. There's four hydro plants being built in Canada right now. Um, it, pipelines, as we know, are political hot potato. LNG plants, there are none. It's a purely a regulatory thing. If Canada just reduces its regulatory burden, um, you know, we could really open up this country and save our allies, which is the most important part of this story, right? Yeah. It's okay. A shame. So here's the prediction moment. My rant over. Sorry. <laughs> the, pre- the prediction moment has come. Ten years from now, there will not be one bucket of energy leaving Newfoundland hitting Germany. Why? Because they'll turn on their nuclear power plants? It just won't happen, guys. Like Newfoundland's been trying to develop Muskrat Falls now for maybe 10 years, and that thing still ain't working. But it's uh, purely a regulatory thing. It's the, the idea that there's no business case, that there's no money involved in that is not true. I mean, it takes 10 years to get approval. Nobody's going to back. Nobody's going to put capital behind something that takes that long, that many, ho- that many hoops to jump through. I mean, I, I like think with, whenever you have government yeah. involved in trying to put together a mega, a mega infrastructure and energy kind of project, it just doesn't work. It's always I just don't buy that. Keith, and, I don't buy that. James yeah. Bay is one of the most important hydroelectric dams on the eastern seaboard. That was government that helped spearhead that movement. It's government that moved the 50 or 100,000 people, you know, 10 kilometers down the road outside of the flood zone. It's government that allowed for massive transmission lines to New York City. Um, You know, government is useless if they want to be. If they want to be intransigent, they can be. And that's what's happening right now. But if government got out of the way, Canada could absolutely execute on loads of major infrastructure projects that could unlock Canada's natural resources. I, I, I don't the, buy the And that's the major that- that's their major word though, if the government <laughs> gets out of the way. I'm sorry, guys. I just don't see it happening. I mean, I that just... probably comes down to which political party is in power in several years from now. No comment. I don't think it really matters if it's left or right or middle in power. It's uh Okay, let's just say, for example, I mean, they're all useless. Let's be honest. I, <laughs> well, I, I well, you know what? I think it's easy to, to pick on one side or the other, because you know there are an awful lot of very good people in, in the civil service, you know, working different departments and so forth. Agree, they're doing a great yeah. job. Um, I think to get something like that rolling, you, you're going to need it's it's not thousands of dollars. Like it's billions of dollars coming in. And I just think we're hitting this, you know, secular swing with with rates, credit spreads, everything. I just think it's going to be very difficult to have this announcement come to fruition. So 10 years from now, when we are on what loony hour number 42,185 and, you know, we're still wearing our like really cool T-shirts 
let, let's Thank see you. <laughs> if, let's see if they uh they manage to pull this one off germany won't even exist as a country by then it'll be broken up between... it'll be annexed by russia <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe oh, which brings us to the euro to see what happened this week with the euro currency well we broke parity a couple of weeks ago didn't we well, a couple of weeks ago, it, it ticked it and it went, went back through. Now it's gone down through. It's, I think I tweeted out, it may never see a dollar again. I think it's, uh, <laughs> Steve is laughing and chuckling, but no, it, I it's love true. It. You've been yeah. all over, you've been, you've been like a dog on a bone on this trade. So yeah, uh, we're making good money on being short Euro and uh, like anyone traveling to Eurozone soon, it might be a bit cheaper for them. It's yeah. not just yeah. the Euro. It's not just the euro, it's the yen mm-hmm. and the pound, as, as we discussed before we started recording. Um, those are also at like the yen versus the Canadian dollars an all time low or high. Uh, anyways, I always screw that up. But it, the, the yen is very, the Canadian very dollar stronger. Relative. Yeah, absolutely. Canadian the, dollar stronger. The problem we is- have here with uh, Europe, uh, again, because last week we talked about the storyline. Hey, like everyone is anticipating and forecasting and projecting that you know, that Europe, Europe is screwed this winter because of what's going to happen with, with energy costs. And, you know, we commented that we all know that, but it's not yet getting reflected in markets. It seems like now it's starting to get, become more real than it was just a week ago. And uh, like some of these increases in energy prices are unbelievable. I saw one for France this morning. Uh, what did the number go up by? I've got some good, I've got some good numbers for you if you want. I know you um, do. So, we've, so uh, this one's from, so it says almost the entire European continent is now operating at electricity prices above um, 600 euros per megawatt. Uh, that is roughly equivalent to $1,000 per barrel of oil. Uh, the last decade average cost of electricity was in the 20 to 30 range. So you're now at 600. Um, yes. So you're looking bucks. at... Uh... 200 times more is that the right number or 20 times yeah i don't it's a lot um and i don't know if you guys saw the comments there from uh french president macron uh who claims that uh he's calling this quote the end of abundance and that uh you know france and whatnot will have to um make sacrifices in order to quote uh defend freedom so um the status quo seems to be you know suck it up and just muddle through, but I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, at what point do you get a bunch of civil unrest and um, you know, we're certainly seeing it in some of these emerging markets that um, you know, are grappling with an energy energy crisis. Um, I don't know. It won't be, it won't be rich countries to feel it at first. I think, you know, rich countries have reserve currencies, they have assets, they can borrow from the market relatively cheaply. Um, It'll get pushed down the development curve. Uh, so countries like, I don't know, let's say Pakistan, which I think had massive protests in the street a couple of days ago, um, because they not only did they have rolling blackouts, but the prices of energy and price of natural gas went up. I can't remember how much, but a lot. And they were not happy um, because Pakistan's economy is not as strong as, let's say, the German economy, even in its current state. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, and then that's like, that is the upshot of this. Um, we were sold a bill of goods that the green energy revolution was fit for purpose. 
and we were wrong. Um, the one, and yes, of course, Russia is absolutely to blame, but so are the people who insisted on turning off their nuclear power plants and divesting from natural gas terminals and not spending a dime basically in the last 20 years on fossil fuels. And so um, as sad as all this is, I think it's wholly predictable, but I think it's really important to keep eyes on Pakistan and Sri Lanka and all these countries that I don't have, you know, reserve currency status and don't have access to markets to um, to borrow and and pay for their for for their for people. I mean, I think there was um, I think the Isle of Man, for example, free froze electricity bills for the entire winter. And they did so by borrowing. Um, they basically borrowed from the market for on a 20 year bond or something like that. And they're going to allocate all that money to basically freeze all of the electricity bills for the entire Isle of Man, which is off the coast of Great Britain. So, I mean, so you, that, you know, that allowed 85 people to stay warm. <laughs> the Isle of Man. Come on. I'm just saying that's what happened. <laughs> That, what, yeah, well, I mean, how does how does this how does this play out then moving forward? Like, so basically, like the the government is basically going to be responsible for rationing well, out. They're rationing right. out energy, so they're going to basically basically pick the winners and the losers and saying, you know, you get energy, you don't get energy. You gotta, you can't turn your heat on. You gotta close your factory, but this guy can open up. It's, it's exactly what's happening. I mean, it was happening in Italy a couple of months ago, if I'm not mistaken, and Germany was talking about it too. Listen, the, the reality is, is they're just gonna they're gonna just start burning coal like crazy, just like India is starting to burn coal. Germany was already burning raw ignite, which remember, not all coal is created equal. There's some that it's worse than others. So Germany's burning brown coal, which is the worst kind, uh, and they're just gonna do it. And Japan is starting is as as has made plans to reverse course on nine nuclear power plants. The problem is nuclear power is only 4.5% of primary global energy usage and, you know, fossil fuels are about 60%. So it's, it's just not enough, but this is an own goal. Make no mistake <laughs> about it. Okay. This is an own goal of like biblical proportions. If there was like a global TSN, this would be like at the top of the pops as far as like own goals for geopolitical and economic strategy. Um, and these people and all here. of which all of which was fairly easy to to foresee not everything in this business is easy to to predict but this one absolutely was yeah there's think, there's been a lot you know of guys else? writing about it for for several years so you know what else was easy to predict keith like falling off his bike after 25 kilometers <laughs> <laughs> You got to give it to Mrs. Icecap for that one. Did you find uh, any more Patagonia hats on your ride? No, no. We no, should. I didn't. We should uh, really chat. I mean, I would love a sponsorship with P- Patagucci. <laughs> I'll, I'll give Eve's uh, Schwinnard a, a call. Sure. See, BMW yeah. with like Porsche did as you, well. <laughs> did you stop yeah. there? Hey, did you yeah. hear that? Uh, the, I don't know if it's like actually true, but like Patagonia was like upset because all the like the hedge funds on wall street were wearing like Patagucci vests and that was like the finance thing. And they, they're like, we don't want to be seen with like the finance crowd. So like, it's the ultimate story, right? Cause that guy, Eve Schwinnard, I think his name is, is the, uh, the, the guy that started Patagonia and he, he started making climbing equipment out of the trunk of his car. And this was in this 
70s. I mean, I bumped into him a few times. And uh, you guys went to the same school, didn't you? Yeah, I know. But uh, no, but he he was like making carabiners and things like that out of his car. And all the other climbers said, man, this is cool stuff. You should make them for everyone. So we started doing it. And then it just started growing. And now today he's, you know, you know, Patagonia is more famous for the clothing line than, you know, their climbing equipment and, and stuff. But, uh, you know, so here's the guy with all the ideals of, you know, get out in the fresh air and peace, man, and all that. You know, now it's like it's a multi-billion dollar company and, you know, all the hedgies in Connecticut are wearing the vest and stuff. So uh, that's the life cycle of money. That's where we go. It's the same with Whole Foods. The guy who started Whole Foods was like just trying to fight the industrial food complex and, and, and uh, you know, provide good quality. And now it's, I think, Whole Foods is owned by Amazon, right? And, and Yeah, guys, and he wears uh, a vest. He wears a Patagucci <laughs> vest. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the uh, trajectory for the loony hour? Trying to s- disrupt financial media then becomes... Yeah, yeah, and becomes a, a paid subsidy of the Trudeau government. Um, maybe <laughs> if, if they approve a liquefied natural gas plant in, on the East Coast, I'll, I'll sign up for anything. Okay, let's let's circle we're, back. So we're we open to we, bargaining. Yeah, we, we're 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 open to money, absolutely. But that's the way the world works, everyone. You know, we're you know everyone runs on a P and L, a profit and loss. Everybody's got or, a price. Yeah, even all you socialists out here, it's a profit and loss. So cynical. That's where we go. Uh, But what I suspect we're we're, so right now, you know, we're talking about like a V-shaped recovery and all that stuff. It's it seems like the central banks they want this L-shaped because they need to reduce demand long enough for supply to catch up with it, and um, so they need a prolonged slowdown or deep recession we we'll see we're going here so I, I know a lot of the central bankers have been out now this week and it's in they all increasingly they all have the same message even though these are my words even though the economies are slowing the data is slowing or getting worse and all that uh, we're going to continue the hike rates until we crush inflation which they want to crush on on the demand side so we could get this period here where commodities become a bit weakish and uh, I know we've been expecting it for a while now. We're looking to put some positions on it as it plays out. If we do get a uh, like a near-term period with, with weak commodity prices, uh, that could be one of these you know opportunities um, that won't come along very often. So remember, everything's going to be cyclical here, and it's going to always be an overreaction to whatever's happening in the market. And I know we joked about you know recording on Thursday, today's Friday, if you're listening and all that stuff. But on you know on Friday, you know we have the Jackson Hole. The central bankers are getting together. Powell, he's already you know performed his act or his speech by now. When when you're listening to this, but he's going to tell a message that, hey, they're going to keep raising rates, be aggressive, and the market's going to try to decipher it as whether he's been hawkish enough or not, and then we'll respond to it. What's, what's your view, um, Keith, on the, on the bond market right now? Obviously, the long end's backing up again. The volatility in the bond market's yeah. been, been pretty nuts. I mean, obviously, I typically am watching you know, the Canada five-year bond for the mortgage market. So we went peaked at, what did we peak at? Three, six. In, in June, dropped down to 2.6. Now we're back up to 3.2 in a matter of like a week and a half here. So the, the volatility is just is, is pretty intense. And obviously the, the 10 years back above 3% in the US. So 
Isn't it funny how like about three, five, six months ago, people were calling for the 10 year to go up to 5%, 6% and, and stuff like that. And it seemed like it has, I think it hit three and a quarter. I think it did rich in, in that range, maybe. The US? And yeah, the US yeah. 10 year, maybe up there. Maybe in the higher. The US 10 year peaked at 3.48. And okay, three, three and a half. And, um, you know, and then it's come down to maybe I'm ballparking one seven. And the number is Steve came down to no, no, it came down to two and two and a half. Oh, sorry. I meant two seven. Yeah. To two yeah. And it, half? Came, okay. it came down to two and a half and now it's back up above 3%. Yeah. So there were a few weeks back, we put on a position, um, the long, the tenure basically. And, uh, we thought we could make maybe 10, 15% on, on the trade. And I think as of now, because it's come back, we might be up maybe three, three and a half percent on it. So like we were getting that recession story starting to play out. And now all of a sudden the banks, central banks are going in one direction and it's been risk on again in markets. So money's left the 10 year and gone back into credit and inequities and stuff. But I think once we get over uh, Labor Day, then markets will you know, suddenly tell us again what the correct path is coming up. I think it's a dangerous game that they're playing. I think it's a dangerous, dangerous game that they're seeing the 10 year rise. I mean, in UK, for example, you're seeing bond yields rise as the currency falls. And in Europe, it's the same. And what that tells you, what tells me anyways, is that investors are not interested in what they're trying, what they're selling. Um, you know, you've got the US DXY, which is a sort of basket of currencies. We're going to hit 110, which reflects, you know, the weakness in the yen and the euro. But to see those yields rise and the currencies weaken tells me that that investors are just not interested. They don't buy the story. They don't, they don't buy Europe, especially UK included. Um, and I think that that's, you know, we've talked about things that might break, um, things that, you know, um, worries. We, we've talked a lot about the emerging markets. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe it's it's the breaks going to happen in Europe. Um, Which is an emerging market. market. <laughs> You're such a prick. <laughs> well, at least you're going back to Milan and campfires oh in coal. Come on, Rich. That's the... Uh... I was, making a, I was making a good point, man. It's, it's amazing to see the chart, which I will promise to share this week, unlike last week, which I screwed up. But the, you know, it's, it's been a long time since we've had that kind of decoupling in the rates and the, um, the, the bond yields and the currency. Um, and that, that should scare every central banker in Europe. This, so just uh, remind, but just remind everyone here, the, the, the central bank of Japan you know, they're not allowed, I mean, they're controlling prices in the bond market. They are not allowing price discovery to take place. The European Central Bank, they're doing the exact same thing. They're suppressing price discovery. Uh, the Chinese are suppressing price discovery. UK it's is really, not. And the UK is not. Uh, so UK and Canada are probably on the same level in terms of really mattering to the world. But it's, it's the US market. You know, they're, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of price suppression taking place in American markets. But when you have that taking place on both sides of, of America, we're only going to get back to a fully functioning economy, a market economy. That's what you know, you'd learn in school. 
once the central banks have removed themselves and you're allowing that invisible hand to move around again, you know, we're nowhere close. I just want to comment on one thing. Um, Cause I know a lot of people are talking about the central banks pivoting or starting to cut rates and, and stuff like that. Um, again, my, my view is that they will only do that unless there's a big crisis somehow, like something blows up figuratively or, or literally, but in, in all the other cycles, I saw a report here earlier. Once the fed has stopped hiking, and on average, it takes about eight months for them to cut rates again. So if you assume they stop hiking, let's say it's October, for example, you know, then you're looking at next summer before they start cutting rates again. That, that's on average. And, and that's going back over, uh, like back to the uh, probably 25 years almost with all, all these different scenarios. So you had the, you know, the long-term capital management you know, the Asian currency crisis and all that stuff mixed in there, 08, 09 and everything. So um, anyway, just consider that. So if, if people are expecting, you know, they stop hiking rates in, you know, September, October, November, for them to start cutting rates again, like one or two, three months afterwards, it means something really bad has happened out there in the world. Right? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very, very important point, I think, to make. I think people hear us sometimes and like, you know, as a misinterpretation of in the discussion of like, Oh, you know, these guys think maybe they're going to be done in September. It's like, yes, maybe done. But again, that just means rates hold there for six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months before again, that, yeah, something, something has to blow up. And so when you start seeing obviously markets rallying over the past couple of weeks, you know, that's, that's basically a sign to the fed that they need, that they can and should be, continue to continuing to hike. Right. I mean, how do you, how do you get a, how do you get a fed pivot with, with markets up, you know, 10, 15%. And unemployment for prime age workers below three wage growth for prime age workers at 7%, no increase in, uh, in initial job claims or continuing job claims, an average of 400, 500,000 new jobs per month, participation rates going up. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting meeting tomorrow, I can tell you. <laughs> Guys, just something in line with that, back to uh, the whole energy story. The, uh, the strategic petroleum reserves with SPR that they have in, it's not in Texas, isn't it? That, that, probably. I, think, I, I, I no, assume I that's no where it's held. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably Cushing. Held. I would have said Cushing's Oklahoma, but that, I have no idea where it is. Sorry. Yeah, I, somewhere coming up from you know, the Gulf. Uh, that's going to be empty by November. At the current rate, no, they're not going to empty it. <laughs> no, that... at the current rate, it will be uh, emptied. So it it is a bullish case for oil that you know if we do get a decline in oil prices here coming up, Rich is licking know, his chops. It's going to be yeah. Rich is like, <laughs> oh, I need my spreadsheets. I need I need my my t shirt for that. Actually, that's a good t shirt. We need to get some proper t shirts. By the way, if there's anyone that's listening. That is like an animator, like a cartoon animator that that thinks they can draft up some some funny T-shirts for us. Um, we would love to hear from you. Please email us because um, yeah, we'd love to. I think there'd be and some. If, them, be if some they're really now. good, try to make a serious T-shirt for us. I don't get it. I, I don't get it. You guys don't get it. You guys. Are... <laughs> Classic. For God's sakes. Jeez. So this this weekend, guys. <laughs> like three. 
this yeah, weekend really. at, the, at the ice cap house i'm gonna host a uh oklahoma well actually it's the, we're calling it the the first annual uh burger booze fest so it's going i'm, I'm cooking a whole bunch of oklahoma mm-hmm. onion burgers for all my friends which is like yeah, three, three people three people over <laughs> no but we're we're gonna cook it up this weekend so uh it's gonna nah, be a good time. Sick. I guess my invites got stuck That's in the middle somewhere. End, we end summer that way. Canada Post. Well, yeah, we're still pushing for the um one of these days we're gonna have a loony hour rager at Keith's house. Five hundred people, <laughs> keg stands, jumping into well, the pool. University kicks off here in a few weeks, and uh, I'm just a few blocks from St. Mary's and, and Dalhousie. And every year, it seems like Dalhousie, in the first week of school, they have this like, raging street party where you literally get thousands of people on, on the street. And the cops don't know what to do. The locals don't know what to do. And Keith is Keith's tired of his there. house getting teepeed. Yeah, he, he's no, going to be not, standing not in his... that zone. Standing on the front porch, the shotgun. And yeah, I'm in the non-rental. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the non-rental zone. I don't have to worry about it. But, yeah, you're uh, like, yeah, you're check like, it out. It's in the news every year. But that that's coming up. And uh, you're like I, Clint I Eastwood. When... <laughs> but I love when universities kick off again because you, you always know the kids are back in town. When you see two or three of them walking up the street, you know, carrying a sofa, you know, a lamp under another arm, and, and stuff. It, it's fun. It's the Part of the the ritual the of circle in their Patagucci, yeah, <laughs> picking up the Patagucci hats. Um, well, I mean, I think that's a, a great place to end it. We didn't quite touch on the uh, the Joe Biden debt jubilee of uh, you know ten thousand dollars student relief. Maybe we'll touch on that another time, but uh, that was also foreseeable given the amount. But one, of debt. one point, one point with that though, I think all the money they're spending on that it overwhelms the savings they claim they're going to get from their inflation reduction act yeah it's all, it's all <laughs> politics i don't know i don't know anyways i mean the big mess. pot keeps getting bigger all the time which is you know more borrowing and so forth to be yeah. fair debt to gdp is now down because nominal gdp has grown so much <laughs> just saying we, hey we said it from the get-go how do you get rid of a massive debt burden inflation kind of inflation helps. So Anyways. there you go. Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, we, like I said, we chatted about this link last week. So December 1st in Toronto is the tentative date for the next live Looney Hour event. Uh, details, events, et cetera, to be determined. Uh, but that is very much in the works, sponsored by our pals at ShakePay. Um, but as always, we appreciate your support and we'll see you next week.